Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're going to get very, very high. Our guest is Nicholas Binge, author of the new buzzy sci-fi horror novel, Ascension. It's about a very mysterious mountain that materialises out of nowhere, ripe for exploration. Nicholas's novel made a similarly sudden appearance on my reading radar, and I rushed to get him on the show. And as you'll hear, Ascension was the focus of a quite fervid bidding war here in the UK, and for good reason. It's a story that blends the old with the new. Plenty of mind-bending high concepts with a delightfully old-fashioned delivery. Both Arthur Conan Doyle and Ted Chang would recognise themselves in this story. Nick and I talk about the place of mountains in our literature, the shattering chaos of quantum mechanics, recontextualising neurodiverse characters, and the merest hints of shoggoths and tentacled things lurks at the edge of the conversation. If you know what that means, then you're probably primed to be a talking scared Patreon. And if you don't know what it means, then you need the Patreon. Simples. For a few dollars or pounds a month, you get loads and loads of bonus content. I think we're approaching 50 hours now. And you help support the show. If you want to sign up, just use the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. And a quick Irregular shout-out to those who've signed up recently. Greg, Riley, Kevin, Jennifer, Caleb, Chris, Kate, Eric, Beth and Stephanie. Thank you so much. You're keeping the lights on. (laughs) That's the admin done. Now, come with me to the upper reaches of Everest's big brother. Up there, the air is clear, but everything else gets very, very murky. Let's talk scared. Hi, Nick, and welcome to Talking Scared. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Nice to be here. (laughs) Nice to have you. Where are you speaking to us from? Uh, So I'm in Edinburgh. I live in Edinburgh. I have lived here for the past uh, about three years. Well, you've lived all over the place, right? Your author bio says like Switzerland and Hong Kong and now Edinburgh. Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, I was born in Singapore as well. So I've uh, I've always travelled and jumped around Um, Edinburgh now and probably, given that I've got two little kids... Uh, who are kind of getting settled into school and things like that, probably for the foreseeable future. Well, yeah, it's a nice place to be as well. Where, where were you in Switzerland? Uh, I lived just outside Geneva, in, in the same area, but just just on the outskirts near the French border. I was there for most of growing up, actually. I was there from about the age of six till about the age of 18. So um, big chunk of my life, yeah. Did you live anywhere near Fernay or Saint-Genis? Uh, not far from Fernay, yeah. Not not that far from Fernay. I asked because I spent a year of my life in Fernay, Voltaire. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. I moved over there for a year for various reasons. Worked as a nanny to a little German boy for like a year and just went snowboarding, hiking every weekend. It was amazing. Um, yeah. Amazing. Always- yeah, no, I actually lived probably about 15, 20 minutes away from Fondi Voltaire. Right. Well, that's small world. And and I, I also lived in Glasgow. So I think basically I, I in a parallel universe, we're maybe on the same sort of track. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Edinburgh is the most beautifully gothic of cities. And all I've read is it says that you teach literature in the city, right? Is that at the university or something else? It's not. It's actually, it's um, it's at one of the schools. It's um, it's at George Heriot School. So it's one of the big old private schools in the middle, middle of the city uh, that looks a little bit like a castle. It's got that kind of um, Hogwarts vibe to it. 
Um, uh, so it's gorgeous. It's uh, you know I teach him one of those old four hundred year old Gothic style turrets, which is just absolutely beautiful. Well, th- this might be kind of answering some of the questions I had for you because the book we're here to talk about has some kind of scholarly pursuits attached to it. Um, there's a kind of, it's, it's in a tradition that I think fits very much your day job <laughs> but we'll, we'll get into all of that yeah um the, the book itself has come out to quite a bit of fanfare and i i believe it was fought over by is it four different publishers in one of those bidding wars that the rest of us here so enviously about uh it was it was five different publishers five. um in, in the uk yeah that, that put in a bid for it okay so well before we get into the story you wrote tell us that story how do you go from your second novel and all of a sudden you're like being torn five ways that's must be quite the thing yeah it's a good question I don't know there was there was clearly something about this one that really hit it with people and I mean at first it first um hit me when I mean I was living in Hong Kong where I published my my last novel and then I moved back to the UK and on moving back here I started to look for a a literary agent in the UK and that was the first sign that that um that I had something quite exciting on my hands because I ended up with, um, which is very, very rare. I ended up with seven competing offers from agents um, within about a month of starting to query it. So there was a lot of excitement about it early on. And then, when, yeah, when we took it on sub, we had five different publishers get involved. And then quite quickly, we ended up selling selling the translation rights to a variety of different places. So I think I'm, I'm, at, I'm at nine different languages it's going to be translated into now um over different points over the course of the next year um so yeah the, there was there was just quite a lot of excitement um that happened from the get-go and it's just been amazing to see people respond so um so positively to the book and seeing so many different people across the industry and readers just get really excited and uh and really want to kind of talk about it to each other yeah i know for a fact now there are hundreds of my listeners some of them who will be published authors just cursing your name under their breath <laughs> that is quite the story um but i can see it i mean i've i've read the book some of the listeners may have too but i can see it would certainly garner interest and excite people because it's got a hell of a premise um for those not in the know can you introduce us a little to ascension yeah sure um i mean at the basic level um the concept, the premise, is that this giant mountain, I mean, taller than Everest, has just appeared out of nowhere in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. A couple of months ago, it wasn't there, and then suddenly it is, right? Uh, our protagonist is kind of recruited by an organization that seemed to have their own motives to climb this this mountain or to at least investigate this mountain and find out what on earth it is, how it appeared to be there, what we can learn from it. And that, I mean, there are some, some suggestions that it's probably a bad idea. Uh, his is the second team to kind of attempt the secrets of the mountain. And uh, he's told that the first team are all dead, all except for his, um, his ex-wife, who has actually um, survived uh, and has gone completely mad because of whatever she's seen on the mountain. Yeah, if nothing else, that's actually even more of an impetus for him to want to find out what's going on on the mountain. With that in mind, they climb... Uh, and they start to explore. Uh, and the part of the reason that they climb is because the anomalies, which I won't fully go into now, uh, just get stranger and stranger as they get higher. And so there's a kind of a, something driving them higher up to work out what's going on with this mountain. 
and let's just say things don't go well. And I think that's that's kind of where it leans into the horror element of it. <laughs> um, uh, there's a lot of kind of paranoia. Uh, they turn on each other. There's things out there. It ends up being a pretty terrible place to be and a pretty scary place to be for a lot of reasons. I love any book that has this real sort of striking image at the heart of it. And and this towering mountain that just appears in the middle of the ocean, that's certainly a striking image. And, and my first question really is, is that where the whole thing started in your mind with that mad image of this solitary mountain? Or did that come later? What was the, the sort of the first building block? The mountain was definitely one of the early building blocks. I think when I start to think about any novel, I start to think about some of the concepts that I want to tackle and some of the ideas that I wanted to tackle in this novel was were kind of the the exploring the concept of human endeavor and of of our desire to to conquer things and to 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 climb things and what that means about us as human beings and for me there was no more obvious representation of that than mountains right we've mountains are they kind of loom large over all of human history whether whether you go far back enough that you're talking about the ancient Greeks or Romans or or other cultures mountains are you know, looked up to and deified. They're where the gods live. You know, we worship them. Um, they're written into our stories, biblical stories, things like that. Um, and then you get to the more modern age and you have this this desire to to climb them, to get to the top of them. You know, we we worship people who are who are the first to get to the top of Everest or Kilimanjaro or whatever it happens to be. And so that kind of mixture of kind of being in awe of it and also wanting to conquer it at the same time fascinated me. Um, and then at the same time, I kind of always knew that I, whatever I was writing was going to lean into horror quite heavily. And I think that mountain climbing is terrifying. Mountains are terrible places. Um, I generally think that people who climb places like Everest particularly in in dangerous conditions or or without too much help I, I think they're insane and that that fascinates me it fascinates me that people put themselves in those in those terrifying situations there's something so isolating about climbing on a mountain and some somewhere where you're you're so open to the elements and so open to nature i think that that must do strange things to the mind uh and so yeah from the get go i knew that i needed to have just a really big mountain to set this book on well, it's certainly a big mountain. And I noticed, unless I've missed something through reading at pace, you never give the mountain a name. Yes. No, the mountain's not not named. I think there's, there's without giving too much away, mm -hmm. there's hints and suggestions in the book that this mountain might not be entirely new. It might be a mountain that we, we may have seen in another form or another, another shape at some point in human history or somewhere else that we might recognize. But, uh, and I think, I think the, 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 that kind of ubiquity of the mountain and, and having the mountain be something more, I suppose, conceptual that it could be anything maybe lent into my I, decision to not name it. I don't know. I'm not sure if it was even a conscious decision. I'm not sure if I ever sat down and went, am I going to name this mountain? No, I'm not. It just never really felt appropriate to do so. Okay. Right. because Well, for a start, first of all, the thing you said about mountains are horrible places. 
Yes. And the, the, the thing about Everest, I mean, your mountain is like much higher than Everest, but Everest alone, I always think when you're up there, you're already, you're dying. You're in the process of dying and you may as well be yeah. on the moon because no one can help you. You know, they're the most sort of otherworldly places you can be on earth. Yeah. The rules of society don't apply and all that. Um, but you make it so much worse by, by making it, you know, a site of some real head-twisting phenomena. How did you develop the strange properties of the mountain? Do you have any background in science? Uh, not not kind of academically, no. I don't have any background in, in science. I, I read a lot of... I read a lot of sci-fi and I read a lot of non-fiction as well. Um, and I'm fascinated by scientific concepts, particularly kind of fringe scientific concepts, mm-hmm. ones that that encourage us to to push the limits of our understanding or to to see things through kind of slightly different paradigms. And I think that the, one of the things that I don't think it's a massive spoiler to say it's in all the promotional material one of the things that 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 happens on this mountain is 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 time misbehaves uh Mm. shall we say it's it stops obviously flowing from one moment to the next you know days turn into minutes or minutes turn into hours um and slowly the climbers lose a sense of of normal chronology and i think part of my desire to do this came from that desire to heighten the kind of almost Edgar Allan Poe-esque madness and paranoia. You know, if you can't if you can't even trust time passing when you're up there, what what can you trust? Who can you trust? I suppose it's that idea like you were saying of being being on the moon and being utterly on your own. Um if you can't even rely on your watch anymore, then what can you rely on? And that, that I think I feel like that helped me to heighten the terror of what was going on. Well, yeah, definitely. And it, it reminded me of something like, uh, I don't know, Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation, where as the reader, along with the protagonist, you're not entirely sure of what the rules of this world are. You know, it's not like it's a straightforward time travel thing or a, a straightforward whatever. There's a weirdness where it's quite slippery in terms of what is going on. That, that definitely evokes on ease. But we're talking about time here. I'm going to ask you about dimensions in a moment. Yeah. Would you consider this to be hard sci-fi or whatever? Because I've seen a number of reviewers referring to Ted Chang in relation to this. How do you feel about that kind of comparison? I I mean, I, I think the comparison is wonderful because I love Ted Chang and I'm always... I'm always a little bit humbled and a little bit um little little bubble of warmth inside of me whenever someone <laughs> comps me to Ted Chang. Um but um but I think that comparison in terms of your kind of hard and so- soft sci-fi is probably close in terms of that spectrum. You know, I'm not writing your really really hard sci-fi the ones that's kind of written by your PhD scientists where everything works and everything makes sense. But I like to think that I'm writing things in such a way that from a layman's perspective, or even from a scientist's perspective, you think that it could make sense. And that, that yes, you might need to, not everything is necessarily explained down to the atom, but the connections are there enough that it, that it could just about work. Um, it's not just completely bonkers and fantastical and made up. And I think that 
that sense of verisimilitude, uh, which I try and do through through other means, through the, the, the kind of letters and the framing narrative and things like that. But that sense that, you know, maybe possibly this could have happened um, is something that I was definitely striving for. Okay, but you mentioned layman's there a minute ago. Um, and I am, a, I am like the definition of layman. So I'm a scientific idiot. I don't, the minute I try and think about any kind of conceptual scientific thing, my, my mind just stops working. I can't picture things in that way at all. <laughs> I'm very much a word person, you know. So when it comes to like this book and dimensions, so often that term is used in sci-fi as a kind of cheap shorthand for a portal fantasy, you know, a different dimension. You go to somewhere else. Yeah. Whereas you stick quite strictly to the idea of dimensions as geometric and, and kind of you know, from the world of physics. And if anything, it's creepier because it comes with certain compelling ideas about what we can perceive around us. But all of that stuff, when you're sitting down to write, as you said yourself, not an expert, how do you digest that and then incorporate it in a story for a layman how do you do that process without either losing the story yourself or or losing the layman how does it not become a research dump you know it's it seems like quite a specific skill um yeah it's a good question um i think part of it is is having read a lot of sci-fi where that is done quite successfully and kind of using them as, as ideas and touchstones to some degree. Um, and actually what, what a lot of nonfiction, popular nonfiction these days, kind of really well-written science books, um, people like Ed Young and stuff like that. Um, what they do really, really well is they, they, they actually break down scientific concepts in very accessible ways uh, to, to people who are not uh, necessarily academics and I think I think there's an element of that going on in the book, but also I do think you know, process-wise, a bunch of that comes from edits. I mean, obviously, I work as every author does. I work with beta readers and people like that when I when I finished writing something and and kind of work have worked with editors over the process. And there'd definitely be a couple of points where people have read it and come back to me and gone, right, you need to cut this explanation down by like half because you this is just you you're on a scientific ramble here uh, and it's 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 uh it's drawing away from the story and so i've had to kind of cut that back and edit it or equally there have been moments where someone said look you've you've introduced this concept here but at the moment i don't get it it doesn't make sense so you need to give me a little more you need to give me a little bit of analogy so a lot of that is is back and forth with readers you know and and working out what works for them and eventually hopefully finding a little bit of an instinct for it of that middle ground between over explanation and under explanation that just works for the rhythm of the story. Well, I can tell you, you did it fantastically because I am, you know, I am on the back foot with this stuff. Like, like I said, anything conceptual tangles my brain. There was only one part of this book where I had to think like, hang on a second, what you're trying to get across here. And that's not a criticism of you at all. I'm saying it's good. There's only one part because I normally struggle um, but for example, you come up with this idea, if we have extra dimensions and they are folded in certain ways that we can't see, the fact the idea that that would add weight and mass and therefore impact gravity and time, does that just come from your reading or do you consult with somebody? Because I don't know how you get to that from, from just thinking of a sort of a, a creepy mountain. Do you know what I mean? 
Yeah, yeah, I don't know. That just it it comes from somewhere in the recesses of my brain, I suppose. When I uh, when I'm writing, uh, you know, I, I, I've got loads of fun scientific concepts that I think are fascinating that are just kind of bouncing around in my brain. Uh, one of them was always this idea that that gra- that weight and mass impacts time. You know, obviously on the scale of a black hole that's super heavy, we know that it impacts time at the event horizon and that time slows down at the event horizon. But the idea that that's technically happening on some level with anything that has weight and mass and anything that impacts gravity. So, for example, planet Earth has a gravitational field because it's got a lot of mass. So time will move ever so slightly differently if you're on the ground floor of your house as if you're on the second floor of your house because you're slightly closer to Earth. Uh, It will be so slow that it's completely imperceptible to human beings but it will be different. Um, and that idea that time is actually constantly fluid uh, fascinates me. And I wanted to explore, I suppose, that a little bit as, as a concept. I've just got a bunch of these concepts that kind of knock around in my brain. And, and as I'm writing, some of them feel like they fit the moment. So I just kind of fit them into the story. Okay. On, on the off chance that I've got some listeners out there saying this is supposed to be called talking scared and not talking science. Let me bring it back <laughs> to home plate a little, but, you know, relevantly. Because when we do get uncanny geometry and things like that, especially in horror and sci-fi, the author that I immediately think of is H.P. Lovecraft, who loved his non-Euclidean angles and all that stuff. I don't know what a non-Euclidean angle is. I I really don't care. But, you know, all of that, I think of dimension horror and geometry as as Lovecraftian. I think he's highly relevant in relation to this particular story, Nick. And am I right in thinking there is more than a shade of At the Mountains of Madness in Ascension? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's some, some, some obvious Lovecraftian elements. At the Mountains of Madness is, a, is an obvious touchstone, both in the kind of the setting, the mountain, the, the kind of the, the cold Arctic setting and mm-hmm. the kind of Lovecraftian cosmic horror uh, feel that's going on i mean i i what i really love about that lovecraftian cosmic horror which you kind of spoke about before the idea of not understanding the idea of being faced with something that's so utterly inexplicable that we can't even put words or language to it we don't even have the words or language to put to it uh and so we can't even understand it it's something that fascinates me and something that i wanted to I wanted the the mountain in in my book to have that that sense to it that that kind of inexplicable sense to it. I mean, I think really the book you mentioned Lovecraft, but the book is a in many ways a love letter to a variety of horror classics. We've got the at the mountains of madness aspects of Lovecraft that we've discussed, and other Lovecraftian things going on in the story, um, which I don't want to give away too much. But even the way that it's written is a kind of is a pastiche of that gothic style. Mm-hmm. So we've got it's 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 written through letters. It's got a frame narrative. It's very it's very Dracula. It's very Frankenstein in the way that it's put together. And that I was very self consciously doing that from the beginning. I was very much writing from a place of trying to take the classic ideals of gothic fiction or the the, the form of gothic fiction and do something a little bit more modern with it, I suppose and meld that into some of the kind of sci-fi stuff that we were talking about. Funny you say that, because I get what you're saying about the gothic thing and the frame narrative, which we'll talk about shortly. 
I think that, you know, the, the basic bones of this story, a group of scholars out to explore a mysterious mountain, that could be at home in the pulp magazines of the early 20th century or even further back, you know, Ryder Haggard, H.G. Wells, Conan Doyle. Do you have just a general fondness for those old school adventure stories or horror stories? I think they bleed into each other. I think they do bleed into each other. I think there's a little bit of both going going on. And I think there's a, there's always a little bit of horror in those adventure stories. And there's always a little bit of adventure in a horror story. But but yeah, the idea of the idea of an expedition into the unknown, which is essentially what all these adventure stories are, is for me personally it's at the very heart of what storytelling is um i mean that whether that's whether that's an expedition into the unknown physically externally in the real world or a bit of an expedition into the unknown internally into kind of characters own minds and emotions and 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 pasts um for me any good story is essentially at heart an expedition into the unknown. That's what you're taking readers on, um, and that's and and so in that way, it's very very much a, a reflection of those classic classic adventures. Mm. What I do enjoy is that in the lack, I suppose, of a Conradian heart of darkness or or anything of that of that kind that we the, the, the maps are all filled in these days. I like that you just kind of went. I'll create my own wilderness. I'll just make my own new part of the map to explore that that's quite freeing i imagine yeah definitely definitely and, and and part part of the book is exploring this idea that for all that we think we know mm. and we do think we know everything these days particularly when it comes to planet earth you know we think we know everything um there there's still the potential for so much more out there so much more that we can't see uh or that we don't know about yet and I, I think that the world still has both the potential and the and the, the a real continued sense of wonder and mystery, even for some people that think that it might not anymore. Yeah, I cling to the thread of every mystery left, you know. Yeah. That's why stuff like, you know, the, the quantum realm and sorry, not not Ant-Man's quantum realm, the actual quantum realm and all of that stuff is is so exciting because just as you start to grow out of believing in the Loch Ness monster or believing in, um, I'm I'm not going to say Bigfoot because my listeners know I get on my soapbox about Bigfoot. Just as you grow out of those those <laughs> mysteries, there's this whole other raft of mysteries to kind of get to grips with that are, are if you look at them the right way, just as creepy and just as as unnerving. Oh yeah, quantum mechanics is terrifying, man. Like if you really sit down and think about what it actually means for any way that we understand the world is yeah, extremely creepy. Uh on on the same level, you're right. And I've never really made those connections before, but it is it's, it's the kind of it's the Loch Ness of the 21st century. Um yeah. and and I think that's fascinating. Well, even call it like the, what's the thing? Because I'm I'm assuming now that you are now my my scientific expert based upon reading this book. So <laughs> there's the, the that thing is it called spooky entanglement the idea that two electrons that are no matter how far you separate them if you do if they are charged together i don't really know the terminology that what i'm talking about but if you affect one the other one can be some on the other side of the sun and it will be it will be affected the same way you know if you spin out an electron here one a thousand that to me is just 
terrifying because that is essentially supernatural. That is outside anything that fits like Newtonian physics. And therefore, yeah, in a way, you could say, does that explain does that explain all manner of things? Does it explain telekinesis? Does it explain knowing the future? Because if if something can have an effect devoid of space and time, I mean, everything's up for grabs. It's almost like they know they call it spooky, you know? Yeah, yeah, because it is spooky. Because it's basically it's like a discovery like that. It's basically just turning around and saying to everybody who thought they knew how the universe worked, at least thought they knew the basics, you know, the ninety nine percent of how the universe worked, and basically is just saying you you don't know anything. You've barely <laughs> scratched the surface yet, um, and and that is kind of spooky to suddenly have the rug pulled out from underneath you. Um, I imagine that's a terrifying feeling. Yeah, I always imagine the scientists are kind of slightly excited and slightly terrified at the same time when they find this stuff. Yeah. Um, Going from cutting-edge 21st century science all the way back to, I think, 1912, the story that Ascension put me most in mind of, weirdly, even more than at the Mountain of Madness, is Conan Doyle's The Lost World. Now... For listeners, that's a sort of short novel from 1912 in which the somewhat difficult Professor Challenger leads an expedition to this isolated plateau in the Amazon where prehistoric life still endures. And in particular, your hero, Harry Tunmore, reminded me quite a bit of Challenger. Was that book a a particular influence? Am I just imposing this on you? It wasn't. I I mean, I can definitely and 100% see the comparisons and i think i think they're valid ones from from your perspective but it wasn't actually a book that i had in mind when i was writing it i mean i've read the book and it probably impacted me subconsciously on some level uh in the grand realm of adventure stories but i wasn't i wasn't thinking about that quite as consciously as i was coming up with ideas and writing this book no because there is something of challenger about tunmore about harry there's something of the sort of edwardian eccentric about Harry. Yeah. You know what I mean? I find that really interesting. His characterization is not at all modern in a way. No, he is. He's, he's kind of like a man out of time, uh, which appropriate maybe um, in, in the, uh, in the book. And I think, I think part of that was again, for me calling back to some of those, those classic, those classic texts of which, of which, you know, the lost world is definitely one of them, even though that wasn't a specific one that I was thinking about, but yeah, he, he does feel like something out of a, a classical adventure story, mm. a little bit more perhaps than, than a, a modern piece of literary fiction to some degree. And you also describe him at one point as a consulting physicist, which made me think you've got to be riffing on Sherlock Holmes here in the consulting detective. Yes. Yeah. A little bit. I think at one point he says he, um, He's tried to give himself the title of consulting physicist, but it's never really caught on. Um, but uh, but yeah, that was definitely a, a Sherlock Holmes uh, nod there. Yeah, I mean, I haven't read your previous novel, Professor Everywhere, but from the summary, it features, quote, an enigmatic professor idolized by students as the pinnacle of modern intellectualism, more myth than man. And right at the start, when I said, I feel like your current job in some way pertains to this book. That's what I mean. Are you drawn to these sort of scholarly types as your heroes? I am. I am. I am. Yeah, I am for a couple of reasons. I am. Um, 
partly because they're good vessels through which to explore um, quite high concept ideas. It's more natural, I suppose, for, for them to be able to expound upon concepts of multiple geometric dimensions and things like that. Um, and so as, as such, it gives me a vehicle uh, to kind of dive headlong into those ideas in my stories. Um, but I'm also interested in academia as a whole and the way in which it's perceived and the way in which it is mythologized to some degree. I mean, this is more so from my last book than it is from this book, but but I would definitely say that that Professor Cranus, who is is the kind of the academic character in in Professor Everywhere, is 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 by no means a hero <laughs> on any level. <laughs> um and um I'm not going to quite call him a fraud, uh, but I do think that I, I, I'm fascinated in exploring the way in which science society perceives these kind of, I don't know, academic genius characters, if they if they even exist at all in the real world. Uh, and um, and I think also from a, from a perspective of writing a kind of Lovecraftian horror type uh atmosphere where we're encountering something that's inexplicable to have a character that that is extremely intelligent um and extremely knowledgeable i mean far more knowledgeable or intelligent than i am have having them completely and utterly stumped as well i think serves to heighten that sense of mystery because uh, if they if they don't know what's going on then what chance do any of us have yeah well if that, like you say, they, if they don't know, right. And he is very much of this traditional type. And he gives, this is Harry, he gives quite a lot of insight into his own uncomfortable youth. He's someone who's learned to socialise. And when you read about some of the stories his siblings tell, he's someone who seems to exhibit what we now call neurodiversity, I suppose. And, and you talk about how society perceives these these characters. Do you think we now have to frame characters like Tunmore and like Sherlock Holmes and like, you know, people like that, M.R. James's um, academics? Do you think we have to now consider characters in that in that new, enlightened, neurodiverse light? Whereas in the past, we had this idea, ideal of a strong, silent, intellectual manhood that went unquestioned. I think that my character was, was in, intentionally written as neurodiverse in as much as I think that most people are on some level neurodiverse, I, th I think neurodiversity is a strange term. Um, I think because it all all essentially means is that you are you the way you process the world is different from the norm. But w what is the norm? I think we've we've all got we've all got our own bizarre ways of processing the world. And we're all so fundamentally different to each other, and we we learn to to socialize ourselves to society and, and and pretend like we're all normal uh or maybe that's just me but i i, I think i think that we all kind of learn to pretend like we're all normal when normal doesn't really mean anything um and for that reason i was very conscious of going okay you know he's got a very particular way of looking at the world that's fine everyone's got a very particular way of looking at the world but i did not want to impose a label on him it's funny because i've had i've had a couple of readers more more than a couple of readers um say to me did you intend to write harry as autistic 
these are autistic readers themselves, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, people, people, um, people who are autistic have, have asked me that. And I said, well, not specifically, no. And they said, because he, he is very much so. He's very, to me, as an autistic reader, he is very, very obviously an autistic character. And that's fine that they interpret it that way. That was never necessarily strictly my intention um, because I think I was wary of of putting. I don't want to put. I don't want to put him in a box. I don't want to necessarily mm-hmm. label him. He is he is a person with a very unique way of looking at the world. Just as Sherlock Holmes is a person with a very unique way of looking at the world, uh, and to me that was what was important. If you want to call that neurodiverse, call that neurodiverse. But I don't think we nece- I, I necessarily chose to approach it from kind of a. I'm going to explore mental health or, or neurodiversity difficulties. I just wanted a character who looked at the world a little bit differently from everyone else because what he was going to go see and what he was going to go experience was so utterly baffling that kind of seeing it through his eyes would be an interesting take on it. Okay. Because, because then we both get his perspective and we both get our own reader's perspective at the same time. So we get almost multiple perspectives on what's going on. Okay, yeah take on board entirely what you're saying and like obviously you're the author but i found it interesting that you don't present him as some kind of you know heroic ideal he's somebody who's compromised and flawed and there's a whole backstory where you realize that his his lack of ability to deal with things emotionally is quite a problem just as on the mountain his lack of ability to deal with things physically is a problem because there's one character who is very physically sort of like dominant and that becomes a bit of a problem on occasion and it it just I found it interesting that you've written this character that was very much from the mold of these old you know highly skilled highly proficient British men um but you had the license to present all of his flaws as kind of you know character texture whereas it seems like we used to look at people like Holmes who I think is clearly on the spectrum and 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 go yeah. you know like, oh he's just tough that's just what a man is he's quiet unemotional and hyper analytical feels like these days there's yeah. a lot more space to discuss this stuff in character even though it's the same kind of character yeah definitely definitely yeah and i think there's much more freedom i think i think that's just changing changing tastes and changing uh mm. um approaches for sure but i do think that we're we're much more interested in exploring characters' flaws than we are exploring their perfections uh, in in modern literature compared to your kind of your Sherlock Holmes style. One of the most profound relationships in Harry's life is with his adopted son, Santi. And that yeah. part of the story is told entirely in flashback because Santi is not on the mountain. And... My question, therefore, is what was the purpose to you of that story strand? What What's Santi's role in this novel? The whole book, as well as being an adventure book that's a bit scary, is about characters trying to find meaning and trying to work out what the purpose of life is and what, what the point of living is uh, to some degree. And for some people like the kind of rugged mountaineer character you spoke about earlier, the purpose of life and living is just to climb the biggest mountain and to conquer the biggest things, right? Um, And I think for Harry, he no longer knows what that is, partly because he thought he knew what that was and it was taken away from him. And because of that, so much of the climb is him trying to work out 
what that is because he spent a long time running from that and spent a lot of time trying to deny that. And so I feel like I needed that backstory and I needed those flashbacks so that we understood where he was coming from as he was going on this journey. I think the journey is not just the journey up the mountain. The journey is the journey through his whole life mm. as a search for meaning and a search for for what it means to be human. Um, and we needed to see the ups and downs of that. We needed to see what he went through in order to kind of understand who he is at the end of the book. And without the flashbacks, he becomes... He becomes, I suppose, more inexplicable. He becomes that kind of inscrutable Sherlock Holmesian character. Uh, if you don't, if you don't understand where it is that he's come from beforehand, okay. It's therefore really interesting that we have almost this entirely interior perspective, because, like you mentioned a while back, you know, people compared this to Dracula, and you were riffing on that epistolary structure, um, and. I, I get that, you know, that, but not just Dracula. There are plenty of diary and letter novels in, in genre fiction. But it, it does provide this claustrophobic way of telling a story where you are in one man's perspective. Why did you opt for that format? Partly because of the claustrophobia, okay. um, which is a, a kind of core part of of the, the terror. Um, partly because... It lets me screw with things more easily when the perspective is so subjective. So, for example, the fact that he's writing letters and that he's dating all of them uh, lets me start to screw with time, even before maybe he's noticing that I'm screwing with time uh, because he's put starting to put the wrong dates on them and things like that. Um, and as that as that kind of dating falls out of sync. Um, it kind of lets me play with that a little bit. So seeing anything kind of tunneled purely through his perspective, it, it gives again that sense of verisimilitude that, that that as he's kind of losing losing the grasp of reality, we as a reader are as well, because that's the only perspective that we have. We can't step back objectively and say, oh no, you're going mad or the mountain is getting really weird. It's it's we 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 can't tell the difference because he can't tell the difference right spot on i wonder something i picked up on really early on in this book and so in, in harry's first letter he the first time he writes to his niece harriet he opens with this seemingly kind of off beat unnecessary kind of segue framing thing about how when he was a kid he used to lie to the priest or he used to make up stories mm. to basically fill his time in the confession box. But then that same priest tells him to keep a wholly truthful diary. So right away on page three, we've got this suggestion that this could all be lies or truth mm -hmm. or fabrication or anywhere in between. Were you keen to instill that uncertainty right from the start oh absolutely and i think you know for it without giving away too much of a spoiler that i that concept is returned to in the 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 epilogue the afterward i think as mm -hmm. it's called uh and 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 hinted at once again i, I do I, I want you to come away from the story and think well how much how much of that was real and how much of it was in his head um and the answer to that question, well, the answer to that question is it can't be answered. Um, 
because because we're only ever in his head and when we don't get anything else uh so yeah that that sense of uncertainty was important i mean and i noticed that the framing device uh Henry, harry's brother is talking about how this has all come to be um i noticed it's titled forward not prologue and i was like aye aye this isn't just a story it's posing as an actual real book um and w- yeah. was that important too to frame this again that word verisimilitude to frame this as a kind of as an artifact you're holding in your hand with footnotes and editorial notes and and all of that stuff yeah totally totally i wanted i wanted it to feel like that these were letters that somebody actually found and then they could be real um or at least that the letters could be real whether whether or not you believe that the story could be real that was that was a separate issue but that you could believe you could believe that the letters could be real and that this could actually be found. Um, okay. I rem- I, lo- I love that idea. I, th- I think the book that does it the best that I've ever read um, and was a little bit of an inspiration for that verisimilitude is, um, is Danielewski's House of Leaves, which does a very similar idea. Yeah, found found letters uh, framed within narratives and, and things like that. And, um, and I remember le- reading that and just thinking this, this, this is that the feeling that it gives me the sensation mm. of possibility that this, this could all have happened. I want to, I want to recreate that. I want to try and do something like that at the same time. You're amongst friends here because House of Leaves is one of my sort of North stars uh, when it, when it comes to horror. I, I basically on this podcast, I'm bit by bit trying to convince my entire listenership to read it but it's, it's, it's they should all feet. they should all read it it's one of the best books ever written yeah i agree yeah. but it is it's quite the undertaking yours is somewhat more palatable i suppose to the to the somebody who wants to read a book a bit more casually yeah young. it's it's yeah house of leaves light yeah uh, yeah you can start start <laughs> with that one before you move up sure okay um that the, the one theme we haven't talked about in this as we kind of draw towards conclusion is religion and faith i mentioned that harry opens with a anecdote about a priest but faith actually more than religion is a really persistent thread throughout isn't it we have characters who span Mm -hmm. the whole belief spectrum where did that come from again again it's a nod to the kind of the gothic classics uh that deal with ideas of, of of science and faith to some degree but it's also for me it felt like an appropriate response to the inexplicable that when you're faced with again that that like we discussed before that lovecraftian impossibility that idea of something that simply cannot be and that we don't have language for hmm. how do we process that and some people try to process that purely scientifically and logically because that's the way that their knowledge system works in their head and some people process that through the lens of of religion and faith and i think that ultimately we're all doing the same thing there um i think hey, the, the the interesting thing about them all is they're all stories to some degree i mean religion is essentially a collection of stories it doesn't necessarily mean that it's that it's untrue because because science is a collection of stories that work together but at certain times, like with the spooky entanglement we were talking about before, it's revealed to us that actually many of these stories that we tell ourselves about how science works, well, perhaps they're not entirely true either. Um, they're just they're just ways to try and understand. Um, 
And so for me, when writing something where we are faced with something that we are desperately trying to comprehend and understand, but we can't, I felt like I needed, at least across the various different characters, a a spectrum of ways in which to understand that, whether whether we try and explain that through the lens of faith or through the lens of science or through a little bit of both um, as we try and kind of get to the root of the meaning. It was an interesting challenge because I, I, I myself am completely atheist um, and uh, but I'm fascinated by religion and I'm, I'm fascinated by faith and I wanted to explore I suppose a little bit myself what it meant to people and how people used it to process the inexplicable. There's a lot of conversation about free will versus determinism between the sort of a central triumvirate of three characters, Harry's in the middle and, and these other two characters, Jet and Thomas, who represent science versus um, versus faith. And they talk amongst the three of them a lot about free will and determinism. And I couldn't work out whether in the, t- in, in, in the world of your novel, that is a terrifying or reassuring concepts the idea that we have this golden path set out for us uh, because in one sense it's like we're at the mercy of cosmic things and the other sense it's like well at least there is a map at least things happening for a reason it's not arbitrary chaos um i don't know what whether it's scary or not do you have a take on that in life or in this book i I, I, I stand in the same position of you and that that's partly why it fascinates me is I don't know whether it's I don't know whether it's terrifying or not um and 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 part of the way in which I want to explore that I mean you've talked about some of the other characters but for me the the, the epitome of the symbol of, of free will in this book and the idea of human will is uh is better the mountaineer character um and without giving away any spoilers um at the end of the book let's just say he makes a very particular choice um at the very end of the novel um to do i suppose with these ideas of free will and determinism and um and i've asked multiple readers since writing it that i asked him what do, do you feel like that was the right choice and the fact that I've had people tell me both yes and no, I think speaks to the fact that it's a very, very complex issue and speaks to the fact that I don't think there are any easy answers. Um, and I don't necessarily think they're completely dichotomous. I don't think that this this issue, you have free will on one side, determinism on the other. I think it's more complex than that. I think they bleed into each other more than we think they do. Well, that's a point you made that I hadn't really encountered before, the fact they're not binary, that I think, as as Harry puts it, within a you know you are given a sort of world but you have your own corner of it to to govern as you will sort of you know um or the quote that you i can't remember what the quote is that you include there's a wonderful sort of quote, quote from a classical text um is it the from the tempest yes it is of course it is yeah 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 all about having free will to a point <laughs> To a point, yeah, 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 and then and then following command, and then this idea that that you can only have free will if you're offered choice, right? Uh, but who offers that choice? Yeah, I think I think they rely on they rely upon one another more than more than many people think they do, and that 
that is something I wanted to explore. I'm not sure I've come to any conclusions. I'm not sure there are any conclusions necessarily to come to, but it was an idea that I wanted to play with as they as as they started to work out what this mountain really was. Um, which I'm not gonna I'm not gonna talk about that because I think that's no. for readers to discover. Yeah, and and that final moment that we won't go into with with Betan, that choice he makes, that's the point where the book achieves this kind of climax that is both very, very real and literal and almost sort of symbolic in a way, in a way that often religions are a, a mixture of the bodily and realistic and the symbolic, I suppose. Yeah. But what, what I love about all of this stuff, as a, I suppose as a non-believer, I love how the fundamental religious idea of a creator or a kind of governing authority can slowly shift, as it does in your book, into something much more science fiction based. And there were parts of this that reminded me of Prometheus, which again is a book about determinism or free, uh, a film about determinism or free will set within a science fiction apparatus. But that again was inspired by Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. <laughs> and yeah. in the end, it all came, this is a really silly way to end. <laughs> But it all played into my absolute love of the ancient alien theory, the guy with the mad hair aside, which is basically yeah, yeah. it's all that all that entire theory is is religion framed as pseudoscience, you know, or or I suppose pseudoscience yeah. framed as as religion. But it does feel like it's really in your novel. Does that idea appeal to you? I'm not asking if you believe it, but does the idea appeal to you? Oh man, it's a great idea. It's great fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think it's 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 almost certainly nonsense, but that doesn't mean that it's not a really fun idea. Um, I'd love, I'd love if we were all put here by ancient aliens from years ago. You know, um, that'd be cracking. Yeah, I mean, that is basically what Lovecraft said years ago. He just didn't have all the terminology yeah. to go with it. You know, um, gods rather than spaceships. But I mean, yeah, the the idea is sadly nonsense, it seems, but it absolutely just fires my imagination. It just like, it lights something up, some synapse, you know? Yeah. Um, it's a shame it's so often espoused in a slightly racist way that implies that people who weren't European couldn't build things. Yes. Yeah. But that aside, it's such a wonderfully rich idea for fiction. And usually espoused by people who believe the earth is flat as well. So, you know, uh, yeah, it loses some credibility sometimes. But I, I, I completely agree with you. It's nonsense, but it would be, it'd be, it'd be cool if it weren't. Mm. One of the saddest days of my life when I knew enough to understand that Eric Von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods was bullshit. <laughs> yeah. It's like when you stop believing in Santa. It's all yeah. downhill after that. Exactly yeah. that, yeah. Well, I've got one more question to ask you before my two closing ones, right, Nick? And you may not want to answer it, all right, but it could be fun. Going back momentarily to Lovecraft, are we talking Shoggoths? <laughs> um, I think we're talking maybe something that inspired Shoggoths, an earlier Shoggoth. I don't know. There's, there's something Shoggothy going on. <laughs> okay. I'll take that. Yeah, for my Lovecraftian listeners, that's kind of catnip now. They're all they're all rushing to read this. That's why I wanted to ask you. Finishing off, can I ask you, Nick, to recommend a book? We talked about a lot of great books today. Can you recommend one book for my listeners to read? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, On any other podcast, I probably would have recommended House of Leaves, but it sounds like you've done enough of a job doing that on your podcast. So I'm going to throw another one. Um, And given it's a horror podcast, I would strongly recommend Fever Dream by Samantha Schweblin. Have you read it? No, but someone else recommended this. Is this one about the mother and son? Is it some weird thing about the mother and son? Am I right? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a weird thing with a mother and a child and, um, God, it's such a weird book and it's wonderful. It's this little novella and it is the definition of unputdownable. Like, it's so amazingly tense and the way that the narrative is written as this kind of bizarre interview between this the, the mother's on a hospital bed and she's talking to this boy who may or may not be dead. He may or may not even be a boy at all. Um, and he's like pressing her to recount the events of the past however many days. Um, but you get both of their voices and just the way that it's done is so deliciously creepy and amazingly tense. I've never seen an author do something like that with just the, with the form of the narrative to, to heighten the tension so much. It's, it's, yeah, it's wonderful it's a fantastic taut little horror novella and i think that i think that everyone should read it you've made that sound incredible <laughs> i want to read that a lot now i always say every week i'll check it out but if it's a novella and it's that good i can probably find time in my mad reading schedule um you will read it in like an hour and a half it's quite short and it's just so page turner pacey well you've done a great job of selling it so thank you very much last question what truly scares you what truly scares me? That's a good question. I mean, I think I think there's there's some obvious ones, obviously. Uh, you know, loss of loved ones and family and things like that. But I think what and this is explored a little bit in the book actually. I think what really terrifies me more than anything is something really going wrong, going horrifically wrong. Um and knowing fundamentally, deep down and unquestionably that it was my fault or that something that, 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 that something that I did was the cause of it and having to live with that, having to live with the knowledge of that and having to live with the guilt of that. I don't know why that in particular terrifies me, uh, but God, it really does. Um, Cause I don't know what I do with myself. As everyone asked that question, certain scenes in your book have now taken on a new kind of, Light. It's always a nice insight into the into the novel uh, when I ask the author that question because yeah, yeah so sure. often <laughs> it's a good question. It's, so often yeah. it reflects some part of the book that has just been truly horrific to read. So and it's no different in this case, right? I think we've done a good job today of contextualizing this as both something that's uber high concept and intriguing and really really fun and traditional, and it sits somewhere in the middle. Um, and I think if anyone likes any of the books we've talked about, they'll get something from this um, i really really enjoyed it mate it was science fiction done with a real flair for horror so nick binge thank you for talking scared thank you so much for having me really appreciate being on it was a great chat i hope i didn't lose too many of you with the words ancient aliens <laughs> You poor souls, you've indulged my Sasquatch rambling, only to be faced by that. I will say, 
I was an enthusiast years before George Sukolos despoiled the whole concept with his mad hair. Sukolos, I will never forgive you for making my favourite batshit theory a dog whistle for racist Eurocentric nutjobs. But, dispensing with him, I'm just saying, I like the idea at least that all of the god stuff and all the myths and all the mystery goes back to star people. You know what? On a nasty Monday, when I've got some really boring copywriting to do, there are worse ways to spend a lunchtime than watching a 30-minute YouTube video about how Stonehenge was a portal to Ganymede. I feel the need to clarify before we go any further. I don't think it's real. Anyway, in Ascension, Nick gets some great use out of, shall we say, adjacent ideas. Ascension is nothing so simple as ancient astronauts or aliens. It's much weirder and much more um, anthropological, I'd say. But it riffs on the idea that there are secrets that go way further back than we could fathom. And nothing is tailored to excite my imagination more than that. I do think I compare Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation to too many books on this show. Anytime there's ever a novel about an expedition into a weird zone, I bring Jeff's book up. And I'm not even a massive lover of it in the way that other people are. And, you know, you could say that Boris and Arkady Strigatsky introduced that idea in their classic roadside picnic back in, I think it was 71. Um, but I do bring up Vandermeer's Annihilation because it feels like it gets the absolute most from the unfettered weirdness that's possible in that story shape. And a while back, we had Fiona Barnett on the show with her book, The Dark Between the Trees. And that's a kind of folk horror spin on the trope. And I compared that to Vandermeer's Annihilation too. Been thinking about that relationship because Ascension goes the other way. Rather than into folk history, it really ups the science fiction element to great effect. But both Nick and Fiona's books would make a great pairing, I think. A great comparison of two distinctly British takes on the possibilities of strange zones in fiction. Yeah, I like this book a lot, you can probably tell. I could talk about it for quite a while, but time is limited. So, if you want to share your thoughts on Ascension or any of the themes we discussed today, from Shoggoths to religion to ancient visitors... You can. Just get in touch. Email me at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or find me on Instagram, on Twitter or sometimes TikTok at talkscaredpod. I'd love to hear from you. What do you think it means that the Sphinx has signs of water erosion? Is it aliens? It's not. It's never aliens. <laughs> if you like the show, I'm back next week with a book that really hit big last year and it'll be out in paperback soon that's sarah gailey's just like home interesting book in which the serial killer in the basement is the least weird part my conversation with sarah may genuinely be my favorite of the year so far and that's a very high bar this year so listen next week for that just just subscribe now so you don't miss it till then though polish your protons keep your electrons charged and conquer your own personal Everest. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.